Section 31 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean McElhenney. ReadingItself.com. Section 31. Theodore Roosevelt, December 8, 1908. Part 1. To the Senate and House of Representatives. Finances. The financial standing of the nation at present time is excellent, and the financial management of the nation's interests by the government during the last seven years has shown the most satisfactory results. But our currency system is imperfect, and it is earnestly to be hoped that the Currency Commission will be able to propose a thoroughly good system which will do away with the existing defects. During the period from July 1, 1901 to September 30, 1908, there was an increase in the amount of money in circulation of $902,991,399. The increase in the per capita during this period was $7.06. Within this time, there were several occasions when it was necessary for the Treasury Department to come to the relief of the money market by purchases or redemptions of United States bonds by increasing deposits in national banks, by stimulating additional issues of national bank notes, and by facilitating importations from abroad of gold. Our imperfect currency system has made these proceedings necessary, and they were effective until the monetary disturbance in the fall of 1907 immensely increased the difficulty of ordinary methods of relief. By the middle of November, the available working balance in the Treasury had been reduced to approximately $5 million. Clearinghouse associations throughout the country had been obliged to resort to the expedient of issuing clearinghouse certificates to be used as money. In this emergency, it was determined to invite subscriptions for $50 million Panama Canal bonds and $100 million 3% certificates of indebtedness authorized by the Act of June 13, 1890. It was proposed to redeposit in the national banks the proceeds of these issues and to permit their use as a basis for additional circulating notes of national banks. The moral effect of this procedure was so great that it was necessary to issue only $24,631,980 of the Panama Canal bonds and $15,436,500 of the Certificates of Indebtedness. During the period from July 1, 1901 to September 30, 1908, the balance between the net ordinary receipts and the net ordinary expenses of the government showed a surplus in the four years 1902, 1903, 1906, and 1907, and a deficit in the years 1904, 1905, 1908, and a fractional part of the fiscal year 1909. The net result was a surplus of $99,283,400. $413.54. The financial operations of the government during this period, based upon these differences between receipts and expenditures, resulted in a net reduction of the interest-bearing debt of the United States from $987,141,040 to $897,253,990. Notwithstanding that there had been two sales of Panama Canal bonds amounting in the aggregate to 50 
$84,631,980 and an issue of 3% certificates of indebtedness under the Act of June 13, 1898, amounting to $15,436,500. Refunding operations of the Treasury Department under the Act of March 14, 1900, resulted in the conversion into 2% consoles of 1930 of $200,309,400 bonds bearing higher rates of interest, a decrease of $8,687,956 in the annual interest charge resulted from these operations. In short, during the seven years and three months, there has been a net surplus of nearly 100 millions of receipts over expenditures, a reduction of the interest-bearing debt by 90 millions in spite of the extraordinary expense of the Panama Canal, and a saving of nearly 9 millions on the annual interest charge. This is an exceedingly satisfactory showing, especially in view of the fact that during this period, the nation has never hesitated to undertake any expenditure that it regarded as necessary. There have been no new taxes and no increase of taxes. On the contrary, some taxes have been taken off. There has been a reduction of taxation. Corporations As regards the great corporations engaged in interstate business, and especially the railroad, I can only repeat what I have already again and again said in my messages to the Congress. I believe that under the interstate clause of the Constitution, the United States has complete and paramount right to control all agencies of interstate commerce, and I believe that the national government alone can exercise this right with wisdom and effectiveness, so as both to secure justice from and to do justice to the great corporations, which are the most important factors in modern business. I believe that it is worse than folly to attempt to prohibit all combinations as is done by the Sherman Antitrust Law, because such a law can be enforced only imperfectly and unequally, and its enforcement works almost as much hardship as good. I strongly advocate that instead of an unwise effort to prohibit all combinations, there shall be substituted a law which shall expressly permit combinations which are in the interest of the people, but shall at the same time give to some agency of the national government full power of control and supervision over over them. One of the chief features of this control should be securing entire publicity in all matters which the public has a right to know, and furthermore, the power, not by judicial but by executive action, to prevent or put a stop to every form of improper favoritism or other wrongdoing. The railways of the country should be put completely under the Interstate Commerce Commission and removed from the domain of the antitrust law. The power of the commission should be made thoroughgoing so that it could exercise complete supervision and control over the issue of securities as well as over the raising and lowering of rates. As regards rates, at least, this power should be summary. The power to investigate the financial operations and accounts of the railways has been one of the most valuable features in recent legislation. Power to make combinations and traffic agreements should be explicitly conferred upon the railroads, the permission of the commission being first gained and the combination or agreement being published in all its details. In the interest of the public, the representatives of the public should have complete power 
to see that the railroads do their duty by the public. And as a matter of course, this power should also be exercised so as to see that no injustice is done to the railroads. The shareholders, the employees, and the shippers all have interests that must be guarded. It is to the interest of all of them that no swindling stock speculation should be allowed and that there should be no improper issuance of securities. The guiding intelligences necessary for the successful building and successful management of railroads should receive ample remuneration, but no man should be allowed to make money in connection with railroads out of fraudulent overcapitalization and kindred stock gambling performances. There must be no defrauding of investors, oppression of the farmers and businessmen who ship freight, or callous disregard of the rights and needs of the employees. In addition to this, the interest of the shareholders or the employees and of the shippers should all be guaranteed as against one another. To give any one of them undue and improper consideration is to do injustice to the others. Rates must be made as low as is compatible with giving proper returns to all the employees of the railroad, from the highest to the lowest, and proper returns to the shareholders. But they must not, for instance, be reduced in such fashion as to necessitate a cut in the wages of the employees or the abolition of the proper and legitimate profits of honest shareholders. Telegraph and telephone companies engaged in interstate business should be put under the jurisdiction of the Interstate Commerce Commission. It is very earnestly to be wished that our people, through their representatives, should act in this matter. It is hard to say whether most damage to the country at large would come from entire failure on the part of the public to supervise and control the actions of the great corporations, or from the exercise of the necessary governmental power in a way which would do injustice and wrong to the corporations. Both the preachers of an unrestricted individualism and the preachers of an oppression which would deny to able men of business the just reward of their initiative and business sagacity are advocating policies that would be fraught with the gravest harm to the whole country. To permit every lawless capitalist, every law-defying corporation to take any action, no matter how iniquitous, in the effort to secure an improper profit and to build that privilege would be ruinous to the republic and would mark the abandonment of the effort to secure in the industrial world the spirit of democratic fair dealing. On the other hand, to attack these wrongs in that spirit of demagogy which can see wrong only when committed by the man of wealth and is dumb and blind in the presence of wrong committed against men of property or by men of no property is exactly as evil as corruptly to defend the wrongdoing of men of wealth. The war we wage must be waged against misconduct, against wrongdoing wherever it is found, and we must stand heartily for the rights of every decent man whether he be a man of great wealth or a man who earns his livelihood as a wage worker or a tiller of the soil. It is to the interest of all of us that there should be a premium put upon individual initiative and individual capacity and an ample reward for the great directing intelligences alone competent to manage the great business operations of today. It is well to keep in mind that exactly as the anarchist is the worst enemy of liberty and the reactionary the worst enemy of order, so the men who defend the right of property have most to fear from the wrongdoers of great wealth, and the men who are championing popular rights have most to fear from the demagogues, who in the name of popular rights would do wrong to and oppress honest businessmen, honest men of wealth. For the success of either type of wrongdoer necessarily invites a violent reaction against the cause the wrongdoer nominally upholds. 
In point of danger to the nation, there is nothing to choose between. On the one hand, the corruptionist, the bribe-giver, the bribe-taker, the man who employs his great talent to swindle his fellow citizens on a large scale, and, on the other hand, the preacher of class hatred, the man who, whether from ignorance or from willingness to sacrifice his country to his ambition, persuades well-meaning but wrong-headed men to try to destroy the instrument upon which our prosperity mainly rests. Let each group of men beware of and guard against the shortcomings to which that group is itself most liable. Too often we see the business community in a spirit of unhealthy class consciousness deplore the effort to hold to account under the law the wealthy men who in their management of great corporations, whether railroads, street railways, or other industrial enterprises, have behaved in a way that revolts the conscience of the plain, decent people. Such an attitude cannot be condemned too severely. For men of property should recognize that they jeopardize the rights of property when they fail heartily to join in the effort to do away with the abuses of wealth. On the other hand, those who advocate proper control on behalf of the public through the state of these great corporations and of the wealth engaged on a giant scale in business operations must ever keep in mind that unless they do scrupulous justice to the corporation, unless they permit ample profit and cordially encourage capable men of business so long as they act with honesty, they are striking at the root of our national well-being. For in the long run, under the mere pressure of material distress, the people as a whole would probably go back to the reign of an unrestricted individualism rather than submit to a control by the state so drastic and so foolish, conceived in a spirit of such unreasonable and narrow hostility to wealth as to prevent business operations from being profitable and therefore to bring ruin upon the entire business community and ultimately upon the entire body of citizens." The opposition to government control of these great corporations makes its most effective effort in the shape of an appeal to the old doctrine of states' rights. Of course, there are many sincere men who now believe in unrestricted individualism in business, just as there were formerly many sincere men who believed in slavery, that is, in the unrestricted right of an individual to own another individual. These men do not by themselves have great weights, however. The effective fight against adequate government control and supervision of individual and especially of corporate wealth engaged in interstate business is chiefly done under cover, and especially under cover of an appeal to states' rights. It is not at all infrequent to read in the same speech a denunciation of predatory wealth fostered by special privilege and defiant of both the public welfare and law of the land, and a denunciation of centralization in the central government of the power to deal with this capitalized and organized wealth. Of course, the policy set forth in such twin denunciations amounts to absolutely nothing, for the first half is nullified by the second half. The chief reason, among the many sound and compelling reasons that led to the formation of the national government, was the absolute need that the Union, and not the several states, should deal with interstate and foreign commerce, and the power to deal with interstate commerce was granted absolutely and plenarily to the central government and was exercised completely as regards 
regards the only instruments of interstate commerce known in these days. The waterways, the high roads, as well as the partnerships of individuals who then conducted all of what business there was. Interstate commerce is now chiefly conducted by railroads, and the great corporation has supplanted the mass of small partnerships or individuals. The proposal to make the national government supreme over, and therefore to give it complete control over the railroads and other instruments of interstate commerce, is merely a proposal to carry out to the letter one of the prime purposes, if not the prime purpose, for which the Constitution was rounded. It does not represent centralization. It represents merely the acknowledgement of the patent fact that centralization has already come in business. If this irresponsible outside business power is to be controlled in the interest of the general public, it can only be controlled in one way, by giving adequate power of control to the one sovereignty capable of exercising such power, the national government. Forty or fifty separate state governments cannot exercise that power over corporations doing business in most or all of them. First, because they absolutely lack the authority to deal with interstate business in any form. And second, because of the inevitable conflict of authority sure to arise in the effort to enforce different kinds of state regulation, often inconsistent with one another and sometimes oppressive in themselves. Such divided authority cannot regulate commerce with wisdom and effect. The central government is the only power which, without oppression, can nevertheless thoroughly and adequately control and supervise the large corporations. To abandon the effort for national control means to abandon the effort for all adequate control, and yet to render likely continual bursts of action by state legislatures which cannot achieve the purpose sought for, but which can do a great deal of damage to the corporation without conferring any real benefit fit on the public. I believe that the more far-sighted corporations are themselves coming to recognize the unwisdom of the violent hostility they have displayed during the last few years to regulation and control by the national government of combinations engaged in interstate business. The truth is that we who believe in this movement of asserting and exercising a genuine control in the public interest over these great corporations have to contend against two sets of enemies who, though nominally opposed to one another, are really allies in preventing a proper solution of the problem. There are first the big corporation men and the extreme individualists among businessmen who genuinely believe in utterly unregulated business that is in the reign of plutocracy and second the men who being blind to the economic movements of the day believe in a movement of repression rather than of regulation of corporations and who denounce both the power of the railroads and the exercise of the federal power which alone can really control the railroads. Those who believe in efficient national control, on the other hand, do not in the least object to combinations, do not in the least object to concentration in business administration. On the contrary, they favor both with the all-important proviso that there shall be such publicity about their workings and such thoroughgoing control over them as to ensure their being in the interest and not against the interest of the general public. We do not object to the concentration of wealth and administration, but we do believe in the distribution of wealth and profits to the real owners and in securing to the public the full benefit of the concentrated administration. We believe that with concentration and administration there can come 
come both the advantage of a larger ownership and of a more equitable distribution of profits, and at the same time, a better service to the Commonwealth. We believe that the administration should be for the benefit of the many, and that greed and rascality, practiced on a large scale, should be punished as relentlessly as if practiced on a small scale. We do not, for a moment, believe that the problem will be solved by any short and easy method. The solution will come only by pressing various concurrent remedies. Some of these remedies must lie outside the domain of all government. Some must lie outside the domain of the federal government. But there is legislation which the federal government alone can enact and which is absolutely vital in order to secure the attainment of our purpose. Many laws are needed. There should be regulation by the national government of the great interstate corporations, including a simple method of account keeping, publicity, supervision of the issue securities, abolition of rebates and of special privileges. There should be short-time franchises for all corporations engaged in public business, including the corporations which get power from water rights. There should be national as well as state guardianship of mines and forests. The labor legislation here and after referred to should concurrently be in enacted into law. To accomplish this means, of course, a certain increase in the use of, not the creation of, power by the central government. The power already exists. It does not have to be created. The only question is whether it shall be used or left idle. And meanwhile, the corporations over which the power ought to be exercised will not remain idle. Let those who object to this increase in the use of the only power available, the national power, be frank and admit openly that they propose to abandon any effort to control the great business corporations and to exercise supervision over the accumulation and distribution of wealth. For such supervision and control can only come through this particular kind of increase of power. We no more believe in that empiricism which demands absolutely unrestrained individualism than we do in that empiricism which clamors for a deadening socialism which would destroy all individual initiative and would ruin the country with a completeness that not even an unrestrained individualism itself could achieve. The danger to American democracy lies not in the least in the concentration of administrative power in responsible and accountable hands. It lies in having the power insufficiently concentrated so that no one can be held responsible to the people for its use. Concentrated power is palpable, visible, responsible, easily reached, quickly held to account. Power scattered through many administrators, many legislators, many men who work behind and through legislators and administrators is impalpable, is unseen, is irresponsible, cannot be reached, cannot be held to account. Democracy is in peril wherever the administration of political power is scattered among a variety of men who work in secret, whose very names are unknown to the common people. It is not in peril from any man who derives authority from the people, who exercises it in sight of the people, and who is from time to time compelled to give an account of its exercise to the people. Labor. There are many matters affecting labor and the status of the wage worker to which I would like to draw your attention. But an exhaustive discussion of the problem in all its aspects is not now necessary. This administration is nearing its end. 
And moreover, under our form of government, the solution of the problem depends upon the action of the states as much as upon the action of the nation. Nevertheless, there are certain considerations which I wish to set before you, because I hope that our people will more and more keep them in mind. A blind and ignorant resistance to every effort for the reform of abuses and for the readjustment of society to modern industrial conditions represents not true conservatism, but an incitement to the wildest radicalism. For wise radicalism and wise conservatism go hand in hand, one bent on progress, the other bent on seeing that no change is made unless in the right direction. I believe in a steady effort, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say in steady efforts in many different directions, to bring about a condition of affairs under which the men who work with hand or brain, the laborers, the superintendents, the men who produce for the market, and the men who find a market for the articles produced, shall own a far far greater share than at present of the wealth they produce, and be enabled to invest it in the tools and instruments by which all work is carried on. As far as possible, I hope to see a frank recognition of the advantages conferred by machinery, organization, and division of labor, accompanied by an effort to bring about a larger share in the ownership by wage worker of railway, mill, and factory. In farming, this simply means that we wish to see the farmer own his own land. We do not wish to see the farms so large that they become the property of absentee landlords who farm them by tenants, nor yet so small that the farmer becomes like a European peasant. Again, the depositors in our savings banks now number over one-tenth of our entire population. These are all capitalists who through the savings banks loan their money to the workers, that is, in many cases, to themselves, to carry on their various industries. The more we increase their number, the more we introduce the principles of cooperation into our industry. Every increase in the number of small stockholders in corporations is a good thing for the same reasons. And where the employees are the stockholders, the result is particularly good. Very much of this movement must be outside of anything that can be a accomplished by legislation. But legislation can do a good deal. Postal savings banks will make it easy for the poorest to keep their savings in absolute safety. The regulation of the national highways must be such that they shall serve all people with equal justice. Corporate finances must be supervised so as to make it far safer than at present for the man of small means to invest his money in stocks. There must be prohibition of child labor, diminution of woman labor, shortening of hours of all mechanical labor. Stock watering should be prohibited, and stock gambling so far as is possible discouraged. There should be a progressive inheritance tax on large fortunes. Industrial education should be encouraged. As far as possible, we should lighten the burden of taxation on the small man. We should put a premium upon thrift, hard work, and business energy. But these qualities cease to be the main factors in accumulating a fortune long before that that fortune reaches a point where it would be seriously affected by any inheritance tax such as I propose. It is eminently right that the nation should fix the terms upon which the great fortunes are inherited. They rarely do good, and they often do harm to those who inherit them in their entirety. Protection for Wage Workers the above is the merest sketch, hardly even a sketch in outline, of the reforms for which we should work. But there is one matter with which the Congress should deal at this session. There should no longer be any paltering with the question of taking care of the wage workers who, under our present industrial system, become killed, 
crippled, or worn out as part of the regular incidents of a given business. The majority of wage workers must have their rights secured for them by state action. But the national government should legislate in thoroughgoing and far-reaching fashion not only for all employees of the national government, but for all persons engaged in interstate commerce. The object sought for could be achieved to a measurable degree as far as those killed or crippled are concerned by proper employers' liability laws. As far as concerns those who have been worn out, I call your attention to the fact that definite steps toward providing old-age pensions have been taken in many of our private industries. These may be indefinitely extended through voluntary association and contributory schemes or through the agency of savings banks, as under the recent Massachusetts plan. To strengthen these practical measures should be our immediate duty. It is not at present necessary to consider the larger and more general governmental schemes that most European governments have found themselves obliged to adopt. Our present system, or rather no system, works dreadful wrong and is of benefit to only one class of people, the lawyers. When a workman is injured, what he needs is not an expensive and doubtful lawsuit, but the certainty of relief through immediate administrative action. The number of accidents which result in the death or crippling of wage workers in the union at large is simply appalling. In a very few years, it runs up a total far in excess of the aggregate of the dead and wounded in any modern war. No academic theory about freedom of contract or constitutional liberty to contract should be permitted to interfere with this and similar movements. Progress in civilization has everywhere meant a limitation and regulation of contract. I call your especial attention to the Bulletin of the Bureau of Labor, which gives a statement of the methods of treating the unemployed in European countries, as this is a subject which in Germany, for instance, is treated in connection with making provision for worn-out and crippled workmen. Pending a thoroughgoing investigation and action, there is certain legislation which should be enacted at once. The law, passed at the last session of Congress, granting compensation to certain classes of employees of the government, should be extended to include all employees of the government, and should be made more liberal in its terms. There is no good ground for the distinction made in the law between those engaged in hazardous occupations and those not so engaged. If a man is injured or killed in any line of work, it was hazardous in his case. Whether 1% or 10% of those following a given occupation actually suffer injury or death ought not to have any bearing on the question of their receiving compensation. It is a grim logic which says to an injured employee or to the dependents of one killed that he or they are entitled to no compensation because very few people other than he have been injured or killed in that occupation. Perhaps one of the most striking omissions in the law is that it does not embrace peace officers and others whose lives may be sacrificed in enforcing the laws of the United States. The terms of the act providing compensation should be made more liberal than in the present act. A year's compensation is not adequate for a wage earner's family in the event of his death by accident in the course of his employment. And in the event of death occurring, say, 10 or 11 months after the accident, the family would only receive as compensation the equivalent of one or two months' earnings. In this respect, the generosity of the United States towards its employees compares most unfavorably with that of every country in Europe, even the poorest. The terms of the act are also a hardship in prohibiting payment in cases where the accident is in any way due to the negligence of the employee. It is inevitable 
that daily familiarity with danger will lead men to take chances that can be construed into negligence. So well is this recognized that in practically all countries in the civilized world except the United States, only a great degree of negligence acts as a bar to securing compensation. Probably in no other respect is our legislation, both state and national, so far behind practically the entire civilized world as in the matter of liability and compensation for accidents in industry. It is humiliating that at European International Congresses on Accidents, the United States should be singled out as the most belated among the nations in respect to employers' liability legislation. This government is itself a large employer of labor, and in its dealings with its employees, it should set a standard in this country which should place it on a par with the most progressive countries in Europe. The laws of the United States in this respect and the laws of European countries have been summarized in a recent bulletin of the Bureau of Labor, and no American who reads this summary can fail to be struck by the great contrast between our practices and theirs, a contrast not in any sense to our credit. The Congress should, without further delay, pass a model employer's liability law for the District of Columbia. The Employer's Liability Act, recently declared unconstitutional on account of apparently including in its provisions employees engaged in intrastate commerce, as well as those engaged in interstate commerce, has been held by the local courts to be still in effect so far as its provisions apply to District of Columbia. There should be no ambiguity on this point. If there is any doubt on the subject, the law should be reenacted with special reference to the District of Columbia. This act, however, applies only to employees of common carriers. In all other occupations, the liability law of the district is the old common law. The severity and injustice of the common law in this matter has been in some degree or another modified in the majority of our states, and the only jurisdiction under the exclusive control of the Congress should be ahead and not behind the states of the Union in this respect. A comprehensive employer's liability law should be passed for the District of Columbia. I renew my recommendation made in a previous message that half holidays be granted during summer to all wage workers in government employ. I also renew my recommendation that the principle of the eight-hour day should, as rapidly and as far as practicable, be extended to the entire work being carried on by the government. The present law should be amended to embrace contracts on those public works which the present wording of the Act seems to exclude. End of Section 31 Recording by Sean McElhenney, readingitself.com.